want to think about justification positionally. It's an odd way to say it, but it's intentional. Can everybody say positionally? Positionally. So, Scripture does not give justification formulaically. It gives it positionally. It describes justification as a place. Not a geographic place, a relational place. Amen? So Scripture speaks about being justified in Christ. Amen? Mm-hmm. Jesus, you know, if you, if you rewind to the beginning, you see that God created the world, but then He rested from His creation, meaning that He acquiesced to its own self-movement, its own self-perpetuation. And then mankind rebelled against those laws of creation. And the law of life, which is the law of sowing and reaping, the idea that you can plant a seed and grow a tree, that law we turned against ourselves and and it became the law of justice. But it's still, he who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. And he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap life. God couldn't just undo the very laws of life and of nature that, that govern this whole world. In essence, those were in motion. We transgressed them When God gave them, they were good. We transgressed them and made them bad, made them against us. And so we began to sow this this incredible harvest of sin with this inevitable, this incredible uh, uh, seed of sin with this inevitable harvest of judgment coming in the future. And Jesus came. God decided to robe himself in humanity, in human flesh, and take on the, the form of a servant and be made in the likeness of a man so that he could absorb in his body that harvest that we had planted. Amen. And so that he could take death for us, take eternal death for us. But hitherto, every man who'd ever died, every sickness that had ever occurred, in a sense was just because we all were partakers of sinful humanity in a world that we had brought the fall, we had brought the curse upon. So the devil, in a sense, had a rightful claim. He sold us a bill of goods. He told us a lie, and we bought into it. And so he had the right to touch us. But when the Son of God came, when Jesus came, he was found without sin, nor was there deceit in his mouth. So the devil had no right to touch him. He was the one individual that should not have died. He was the one individual who would have lived forever because he did not share in the Adamic curse of sin. But the devil thought, I know how to do this. I've done this over and over. I'm going to use my powers to snuff this out, and that'll be that. But when he did that, when he snuffed out the King of Glory, he didn't understand two things. One, that he had undermined his power and ripped a hole in the canopy of control covering the whole earth. And he didn't understand that because he was sinless, he would not remain in the grave. Mm -hmm. Behold, the ruler of this world is coming, but he has no hold on me. This won't last. (laughs) So Jesus came with the express purpose of undermining and creating this rip where where the devil would lose control at the cross. But he also came to clean our consciences. 
The Bible says in Hebrews, the blood of the cross cleanses our consciences from an evil conscience. That's the suspicion. We didn't know who God was. We thought God was this angry man in the clouds with a hammer. And then all of a sudden, we see that God has made Himself a man. And He's walking among us and He's loving us and He's showing us mercy and He's healing the sick and cleansing the lepers and raising the dead. And then that this God is willing to, to suffer in His human body on the cross so that He can absorb this full harvest of judgment that was coming our way. It totally changed our view of who our Father was. Jesus was not the incarnation of a new God called God the Son. He was the incarnation of Yahweh. That's why in Zechariah it says they will it says they will look on him whom they have pierced and mourn for him. But he changes the verb, he changes the pronoun there. Mourn for they will look on me whom they have pierced and mourn for him as of an only begotten son. Yeah. Amen. The word of Yahweh. Yes. They will look at me whom they Yahweh says they will look on me whom they have pierced and mourn for him as one mourns over the only begotten son. Amen. Do you understand? Amen. There's only one Savior, Isaiah tells us. In that day there will be one king and his name the only name, Zechariah tells us. Paul told him to watch out for the flock of God which he purchased with his own blood. God was fully man, and He was fully God. In the Spirit, Jesus was the Father walking around showing us God's true nature. In His humanity, he, in His sonship, He was also in submission as a human being. Amen. But, but He gave everything to show us God's love. Amen. But then he, he, he gives us this idea. The Scripture gives us this idea that Jesus is a place... Jesus ascended and, and gave gifts unto men so that that one individual would become the corporate body of Christ. And that corporate body of Christ would come into increasing oneness with humanity in the metaphor of the bride and the groom as we become less and less distinct and more and more united in His likeness. And this metaphor we started the conference with, it, it is introduced in Isaiah 62 where it says that Zion will no longer be called forsaken or desolate, but will be called my delight is in her, and she will be called married. Now, it's important that when Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, He tells her something that relates to this passage in Isaiah 62. What does He tell her? Behold, your house will be left to you desolate until you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name authority of the Lord. So the desolation will be, re will be reversed when the people of God accept the authority of God, accept the, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. But Zion, we know, is the church. and She will no longer be called desolate, but she will be called the bride of the Most High. And I ask you, does, do you have some idea that God the Father has a bride and God the Son has a bride? Or is this the one bride of the one God? <laughs> There's only one bride. <laughs> We're all baptized by one Spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks. So there's not a Jewish body and a, and a uh, Gentile body. There's one body. So this bride of Christ 
is the bride of the Most High. She will be called the bride of the Most High. And that is the church. That is the community. That is the congregation of believers. Not, not, not merely people who claim it, but people who are fitly framed together. Who are part of that bride who is being washed to be presented as a pure bride without spot or blemish or any such thing. So, Jesus, God, is in covenant with a people. And that covenant is powerful. That covenant is salvation. How? <laughs> we see this in our, in our day. When my wife got married, she didn't have any debts. Uh, she brought $1,500 to the marriage, which was about what I was bringing. <laughs> so, lucky us. Uh, <clears throat> but she didn't have any debts. But let's imagine, it's not unheard of, I know of a situation where the bride has $100,000 in student debts. Over $100,000 in student debts. And the husband has $400,000 in assets. And when they get married, there is an exchange of assets and liabilities. His assets become hers. Her assets become his. Her debts become his. <laughs> and they have a true oneness. Amen? And that's what our sins and God's righteousness, that's how it works also. God does not pass out, get out of jail free cards. He invites you to stop being you. Amen. He invites you to become part of Him. Amen. Amen. If, you were a, if, you were a, if you were a criminal running through the streets and trying to evade the cops, and, and you had brown hair and brown eyes and, and a beard, you'd dye that hair blonde and you'd cut it short and you'd shave your beard. You might even put blue contacts in your eyes. To, to hide. You would change your identity to escape the condemnation that attached to that identity. But it would be a fraud. But in this case, God doesn't offer us a fraud. He says, I want you to change your name. I want you to change your purpose. I want you to change your spirit. I want to put my very spiritual DNA inside of you. You weren't born as a son of God, but you can be born again as a son of God. And I'm going to put my spirit inside of you so that you can look to Yahweh and call Him Daddy. Amen. It says He has given us a spirit of sonship by which we cry out, Abba, Father. We don't have that right to call Him Abba, Father until He's put His spirit inside of us. But that which is born of the Spirit, as many as are born of the Spirit, these are the sons of God. So He offers you to come into Jesus. But... Let's now use the metaphor of, let's go back to the metaphor of the, the debts and the, and the assets. That exchange does not happen outside of covenant. It does not. <laughs> He's not passing out, get out of jail free cards. He is saying, if you'll come into covenant with me, if you'll cease to be you and become part of me, then my righteousness will be your righteousness and your debts I have already paid. <laughs> but there's only salvation in that covenant. Amen. There's not salvation in multiple marriages, and there's not salvation just handed out outside of Christ. So some of the language that Paul uses is interesting. At times he uses the marriage metaphor. At other times he uses the court metaphor. But he, he also uses the, the conquering Roman general metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> But he says there in that passage that we've been quoting from Ephesians 4, that when he ascended, he led captive a host of captives. 
That doesn't mean that he, he went and freed all the captives. There was a principle in the court system of that day where a rich man could purchase a criminal and could say to the court, I will pay this amount and he will become what? My slave. My bond slave. That is the phrase that Paul uses. He gives us this image of Jesus walking into a courtroom. And all of us are hopeless. We're condemned. And he doesn't come in and say to the court, set them free! He comes in and says to the court, I will purchase them and place them under my jurisdiction. He does not free us to our own recognizance. He takes captive a host of captives. Doesn't say he frees a host of captives. It says he takes captive a host of captives. If we walk out of that courtroom under his name, under his identity, under submission to his word and authority, then we are good to go. If we imagine we're going to walk out of that courtroom willy-nilly, we're fools. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. I am a bond slave of Jesus Christ. So there is no construct of atonement or justification that does not entail a covenant obligation as of a bond slave to a master. To say I was on death row and you came and purchased my freedom. But you didn't just put me in chains. You said I want to make you part of me. I want to give you my word. I want to give you my name. I want to give you my identity. I want to give you my spirit. I want to make you a son who could call me your dad. And it really mattered. Thank you Jesus. So there's no salvation. These silly, cheap, schmaltzy, Justification models have nothing in common with the view that Paul is presenting to us. It's real, brothers and sisters. It's a purchase. And it's not like I'm free, but you know what? I ought to remember my benefactor. You're not free. You're free from sin. You're no longer a slave to sin so that you would be a slave of righteousness. Amen. There's not freedom from Christ. There's freedom in Christ. Amen. As soon as we have freedom from Christ, we fall back under the judgment that was over us at the beginning. So, baptism is not where God gives us, takes our passport and puts a Jesus stamp on the third page. Baptism is where we turn in all our passports. And we say, God, when we get to the Gates of eternity. We're not showing a stamp on our passport. We're showing Jesus' passport. Amen. And we're saying, for me to live is Christ. My life is hid with God in Christ. I am not my own. I've been bought with a price. You can't find the criminal. And it's not because God's put a rubber stamp on him. It's because he's dead. Amen. He doesn't live anymore. Are you looking for a bond slave? Are you looking for someone part of Jesus? Here's one. There's only one man who is truly justified. There is only one man who is truly and authentically righteous before God, and that is Jesus. Amen. We have got to be part of Him to enjoy that status before principalities and powers and eternal judgment. So, baptism is conceived of as an immersion into Christ. Galatians 3, 29. Amen. You who have been baptized 
have clothed yourself. You have been immersed into Christ. It is where you lose one identity. The identity of the condemned you. That you will never not be condemned. It's got to cease to be. Amen. <laughs> that you is not a sanctioned criminal. That's the, that's the garbage justification that is taught. God does not offer sanctioned criminality. <laughs> he doesn't offer criminality with a, with a, with a get-out-of-jail-free card. Amen. He doesn't give you diplomats license to do what you please. That's not what He does. Amen. He says you've got to cease to be that. And you've got to become part of Him. Amen. You've got to be a bond slave. You've got to be purchased. You've got to be owned. And so, baptism is for the New Covenant what circumcision was for the Old. But it's so much more. Amen. Because the New Covenant is so much more. Amen. He's not strapping our sins to a goat. Amen. He's not going in and sprinkling the blood and, and, and going in once a year. He's inviting us into the Father's house. He's inviting us into salvation directly. So we say, what, what, what is supposed to be occurring? And I take you back to my first question. Is Baptist more analogous to a bath than to a vow? Which is, is it more similar to a vow or a bath? And, and I would argue that it is similar to a vow. And I, I, don't argue, I don't contend that there's not a bath element in baptism. There are two scriptures that suggest that. But there are more scriptures that show the other side. And yet, the imagery of being dunked in water is very emblematic of a bath. And so, it kind of sits in the back of our heads, whether God put it there or not. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's typically when we're dirty sinners and we get in a bath. You know, it kind of makes, kind of comes together. But Peter, who introduces baptism in Acts, clarifies its purpose and meaning in his third chapter of his first epistle. And he says that the water aspect is not similar to a bath, but he says it is similar to Noah's flood. Noah's flood. Jesus absorbed on the cross... The judgment of God against human sin. But baptism represents that judgment of the cross. And it's us choosing to submerge our sinful nature under the judgment of the cross. Amen. And saying, cursed is he who hangs upon a tree. I'm preemptively putting my flesh under that judgment that he suffered on the cross. So he likens it to Noah's flood. He says, In the days of Noah, eight souls were brought safely through water. Now don't give me some rigmarole about how that's not a water... He's not talking about water baptism. He most certainly is talking about water baptism. Brought safely through water. Corresponding to that, he says, baptism now saves you. Now, theologians choke and sputter and get water up their nose and just make all kinds of messes trying to get around. <sighs> Baptism can't save us because that's works. And yet, no, you have the wrong view of works. You have the wrong view of grace. And you've got the wrong view of salvation. We know that salvation is a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Amen? This is the big picture. But baptism is the vow. 
that binds us to the relationship that saves us. God does not propose an adulterous relationship. He does not propose a courting relationship. He proposes a marriage covenant relationship. Baptism binds us to the relationship that saves us. And it is our pledge. Peter says, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but the pledge, the eparatima, the pledge of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he says, baptism saves us. You say, how? We'll figure out how it relates to the relationship. It is the marriage vow for the relationship. That's how. And it doesn't mean that you can't be saved before baptism. God will impute that marriage vow to you so long as you're walking by faith. Amen? And it doesn't mean you can't be lost after baptism. You can always break and walk away from that marriage vow. It just means that that is the form of the saving relationship. That is the glass that holds the water of the relationship. And it's a, it's a, it's a pledge to make Jesus the Lord of your life. So the word he uses is eparatima in the Greek. That's the word for answer or pledge. Can everybody say eparatima? Eparatima. It's not really a word commonly used, but Howard can correct me, but it's not really a word commonly used in Greek philosophy. It's a word commonly used in Greek uh, court systems, in Greek law. And it was often used to describe placing a, an individual under oath asking them solemn interrogation questions. Amen? So when you, when you are faced by an official and made to give answers that you're going to be held liable for, that is eparatima. Amen. So when he says baptism is your eparatima, he's saying you're standing in judgment. You're standing in the waters that symbolize judgment and you're answering a solemn question for which there is going to be consequences. Amen. And what is that solemn question? Who is the Lord of your life? Amen. This is what he spoke of when he said that Timothy gave the good confession in the sight of many witnesses. And he said it was the same kind of confession Jesus gave when he stood before Pilate and confessed that he was the king of the Jews. So what we're confessing is who is our king? Amen. The king of the Jews. The same sort of answer. I am the king of the Jews, he told Pilate. He confessed that, that he was who they said he was. Amen. And so that's what baptism is doing for us. It's us making this confession that if the court says to the man on trial, do you accept the terms to move from this jurisdiction of death row to this jurisdiction of a bond slave of Christ? Do you accept to give up your your carnal rights? Do you accept to give up your identity and authority? Do you accept to give up the tyranny of your self-will? Do you accept to give up all of that and become an expression that brings honor and glory to your Lord alone? And you answer in the waters that represented God's biggest judgment on sin in human history. The flood waters is what you're standing in. You say yes. Now here's the interesting thing. He says eight souls were brought safely through water. Because the same water that submerged and killed the ungodly lifted the godly because of their commitment and obedience through grace. So there were waters 
that unite in waters that divide. Amen. Unite us with God and divide us from that fallen world of under judgment. In the same way we see a baptism in the crossing of the Red Sea. It says they were baptized into Moses through the cloud and through the sea. And in the, in the sea, all the Egyptians, they died. And all the Israelites, all the children of God came out the other side. So in baptism, you're supposed to leave your Egyptian in the water. Hallelujah. You're supposed to leave your, your rebel under the flood waters. Those waters don't represent a bath. Except if you're talking about washing away your identity. Right? Now let me, let me go to another passage here. I've quoted it several times, but Acts 2.38, Peter's most concise declaration of the Gospel. Repent. Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children, to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call. So he says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. Again, theologians make all kinds of shorts and pops and backfires in their heads trying to figure out how he doesn't mean that. How what he must mean is repent and, and, and be saved and you shall be baptized. And all kinds of garbage because they don't understand relational salvation bound by a covenant. And they don't see that that covenant is officiated through circumcision, which is today baptism. And it doesn't mean that Abraham wasn't justified before circumcision. He was. And we can be justified by faith before baptism, but that doesn't negate the need to be baptized. It just shows that that status is credited to us until it can be walked in. Amen? Amen? So they say, well, what does he mean by this? Repent for the remission of sins. I mean, and the word is ice, you know, for because of. They, they, he must mean repent because of. Be baptized because of the remission of sins. Amen. You've already, your sins are already remitted. So now, let's do this outward sign of the inward change. This is a perversion of Scripture because of this construct about works that came from the works of human minds, not from the Scripture. So you look at that exact phraseology found in Acts 2.38 and you find it one other place, verbatim. It's in Matthew 26.28. In Matthew 26.28, Jesus takes the cup in the communion supper and He says it's His blood. And speaking about the blood on the cross, He says... This is the blood of the new covenant shed for the remission of sins. It's the same ice word. It's the same phraseology as Peter used to describe baptism. No theologian is going to spin their wheels trying to tell us that that didn't really mean that the blood was for the remission of sins. Even though it is exactly the same words in the Greek. For the remission of sins. They're going to acknowledge that he meant exactly what he said. But when Peter says baptism is for the remission of sin, oh, they can't mean that. What they don't understand is that baptism places you into the body of Christ. It places you into that relationship where the blood is covering all our sins. It doesn't mean that baptism can stand alone as a saving act done for the unknowing or the unrighteous or the, those out, outside of relationship. We can't have marriages of convenience. Right? We can't say, uh, I want to move from Mexico to the United States, so I'm going to marry you even though I don't love you, and once I get across the border, I'm going to leave you. So in that sense, we've gone through the vow of baptism. It wouldn't do any good for anybody unless it corresponds 
to a real relationship with Jesus, it's meaningless. But if it corresponds to a real relationship with Jesus, then as you lose your identity into His, then your sins become His problem and His assets become your possession. And that's how there is a proper exchange in that oneness of baptism. So then there are those who are going to make uh, a lot of hoopla about Matthew 28, 19, where Jesus says, Go ye into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I didn't even start at the beginning. And, and, and they say, well, so that means we should baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, correct? But that begs the question, what is the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Amen. Father is not a name. Son is not a name. Holy Spirit is not a name. But what is the name? This passage in Matthew 28, 19 is startlingly related to Isaiah 9, 6. Isaiah 9, 6 is the most quoted messianic prophecy of Jesus. Unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name, everybody hear that singular name? His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, which refers to the Spirit, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Remember we said that the Son's name would be called Everlasting Father. Prince, which refers to the Son. Prince of Peace. And of the increase of His government and peace, there will be no end. So the introduction of the Son's name as Spirit, Father, Mighty God, Son is given in Isaiah, and it's going to result in the increase of His authority and peace. Now let's go back to Matthew 28, 19. Listen. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to us. Is that what Jesus said? No. He said, has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go ye therefore into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, and lo, we are with you always. Is that what he said? No. The name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost is a lo, meaning therefore, because of, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He is saying to the apostles, you know what the name of the Son is. You know what the name of the Father is. He had told them, I have come in my Father's name. Amen. He said he would send the Spirit in my name. So Jesus is the name of the Father, Jesus is the name of the Son, and Jesus is the name of the Holy Ghost. And we don't have any further debate. Because Peter obeyed that command, he didn't merely parrot that command. He knew, and he said, baptize in the name of Yeshua HaMashiach for the remission of all your sins. You look at Luke's parallel. The Gospels don't all give the exact wording of events. They will tell... The same event in this phrase, in this way of speaking, and tell the same event over here in a little different language. So Luke just paraphrases this. You know how Luke paraphrased the Great Commission? He said, Jesus declared that repentance and remission of sins would be preached in His name beginning at Jerusalem to all nations. So there's His all nations commission. Repentance and remission of sins would be preached in His name. Because Luke knew 
what the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost was. He knew it was His name. His name is His identity. His name articulates His power. His name is not peripheral. It's what He's given us. It's the contact point that God has given for humanity to take hold of God. And His presence and His power and His glory are present in His name. If God's presence weren't present in His name, it would be idolatry to praise His name. Only if His name is truly a representation of Himself is it honorable, is it worthy and holy to praise His name, to exalt His name, to worship His name. Amen. He has given us His name. His name is Yeshua HaMashiach. Yahweh, Yahshua. Yahweh becomes salvation. Amen. That's His final revelation of Himself to man. Not this confused, is it the God the Son and is the Father still mad and yada, yada, yada garbage. It's simple. Amen. Amen. It's Jesus. It's the God of, of the Old Testament. It's the God of His people. I am the God of your fathers. I am Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And it is the same God who brings us in the Exodus through Yeshua. What is necessary for baptism? What is necessary individually? First to understand what it is. And how it is, it is joining the body of Christ outside of which there is no salvation. That's the first thing. It is joining the commonwealth of Israel, the Israel of God. But beyond that, it is called the burial. Because in joining that, we must be burying the Egyptian of self-will. So what is necessary for baptism is a death. When the death of repentance has occurred, we can have a burial. But we cannot kill by burial. We don't bury alive. We don't bury and hope they die. <laughs> we bury something that is dead. And to what extent must it be dead? Do we need to reach perfection before we're baptized? No. No. We need to reach a perfection of will. We need to reach a perfection of will where our whole soul is to do God's will. Amen. The war needs to be settled. Not the battles, the war. Amen. It needs to be settled. There will be more battles, but the war needs to be settled. Amen. You win. Amen. We need to renounce our own autonomy and the slavery to sin needs to be broken. There needs to be a break in the mastery that sin had over us. Doesn't mean we don't make mistakes. Doesn't mean up until you go into those waters you're not still thinking of mistakes. I hope you think of more mistakes by the dozen after you come up out of the waters. That's what you're committing to, to walk in a good conscience toward God. You're not saying it's I'm, I'm perfected. You're saying I'm ready to make a vow of covenant relationship with the one who died, died for me. Amen. I'm, willing to, I'm ready to be completely joined to the only Lord and Sovereign. Some of you... Some of you have already been baptized and you didn't have this understanding. And some of you may feel to be baptized again because you feel that your former understanding was not sufficient or it was not done according to Scripture. That doesn't disrespect your former baptism. Mm -hmm. 
That was a step of faith if it was done in faith. And faith is what saves you. So it was part of your salvation. But that doesn't mean that as a church that is moving toward restoration, we can just say, oh, I took care of that. We don't want to do the bare minimum. Amen. We want to be part of Jesus. Amen. We want to take this all the way back to Zion. Amen. Amen. So we're not asking God, do I have to? We're asking God, Lord, are you calling me to something new? Amen. We want to have the spirit of Apollos who was mighty in the Scripture, who taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, but learned a more excellent way. Amen. He only had the baptism of John, which was the baptism of repentance. But he didn't have the baptism in the name of Jesus that was going to immerse them into the body. Amen. Amen. And when they had that, then they started getting the Holy Spirit. They spoke in tongues when Paul laid his hands on them. So there is power released in the understanding and the enacting of this covenant as it, as it was given. Amen. But there's no judgment. There's no judgment for those who did the best they could and, and, and did it according to faith. God bless that. That's what brought you to this place. That's like Abraham saying, Lord, wasn't it good enough that I left Ur? Do I really have to be circumcised? No, it was, Lord, I know I can only receive this covenant of circumcision because I made the covenant of obedience when I left Ur. That brought me to this moment. And the circumcision is going to take me to the next moment. Amen. Amen. It's from faith to faith and glory to glory. Amen. The righteousness of God is being restored and revealed.